Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. This is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Stacy Schultz-Cherry. She's a member of St. Jude's faculty. She's also deputy director for the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Studies on the Ecology of Influenza in Animals and Birds. So, Stacy, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would tell me about your work uh, with influenza. Sure. So what we're interested in, we have a number of, of different studies, but our primary interest is understanding influenza disease severity, viral evolution, and even vaccine responses in high-risk populations. Specifically, we're looking in people that are overweight, obese, and in pregnant women. We know that in these populations, disease is more severe. Um, They're often transmitting or shedding virus longer, and our vaccines just don't work as well as we want them to in these high-risk populations. Well, when you say they don't work as well, does that mean they have side effects or the people just end up getting flu anyway? Like what happens? Yeah, no, the people end up getting flu anyway. And that's a big project we have. We actually were awarded Center of Excellence with the University of Georgia to develop improved influenza vaccines. And our entire center is focused on not just healthy adults, but, you know, children, the elderly, people that are malnourished really the high-risk populations. We want the vaccines to be more effective and to last longer so that you don't have to get a flu shot every year. What's the effectiveness of the flu shot? In, uh, I mean, so many people get it. You know, has there been a, a, a look at, uh, you know, for various cohorts of people, like how many get flu and how many don't? What's that percentage? Yeah, no, it's a great question. We know over the past several years, and I'm sure you've seen in the media and on you know, social networks that the seasonal flu vaccines are not as effective as they want, we want them to be. And it's, you know, it's kind of misleading because when you get your flu shot, there's actually four different strains of flu in it. And it may be that one of those strains aren't as effective as we want it to be rather than protecting, you know, 60 or 80% of the people, maybe it's only protecting 50%. But it's, you still have three other strains, and it's been really important these past few seasons to get your flu shot because we have had so many different strains of flu circulating sort of one after the other. And in these high-risk populations, especially overweight obese, we know that from some cohort studies that you know when you get the vaccine and you look at your antibody responses, your protective immune responses, maybe at one month and three months, it's the same as somebody that doesn't have overweight or obese issues. But then when you get a, bit, a little bit longer, you seem to lose the responses faster. And we want to figure out why that's happening and how are we going to overcome it. Well, if the flu changes so much, why is there only three or four variants? Why not have the variants for the past you know, 20 seasons and inoculate someone with you know, just 
dozens of variants? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's something that we're able to do for things like pneumococcus. But with flu, we haven't been that successful doing that. Even when we went from three different strains to four different strains, we had problems with some of the strains basically outgrowing other ones because we have to grow the virus in eggs. And now some are being grown in cell culture. You have to inactivate them, you detergent split them. But even during sort of the, the immunization process, sometimes your body mounts stronger responses to one of the subunits versus another. And so you don't get good responses to, or as good responses as we want to all four of the components. But it's something that people have talked about now that we're looking at making better seasonal vaccines or even a universal flu. How many different flu strains can we put in and still have really good protective immunity against all of them? And if the flu changes so much, I mean, I guess our scientists trying to guess what's going to come this year. Is there any modularity or predictability of how the flu changes each year? Has that been analyzed or figured out? Yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So, you know, twice a year, there's a group of people that go, that, that, it's part of the WHO World Health Organization Collaborating Center. So there's a group of people that collect data throughout the year from all around the world. We look at what strains are out there. We sequence them to look at the, the genetic footprint of um, the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. And then twice a year, you take all of this data from around the world and you look forward. So basically, when we have these meetings now, we're looking for the, the vaccines for next year. So there is some prediction, but you're also, you have really good algorithms and it is improving all the time. Um, understanding how the virus is changing and trying to stay three steps ahead of it. That's where these universal flu vaccines or improved seasonal, rather than looking at this part of the virus that changes all the time, let's mount immune responses to parts that are more stable and don't change so that you do get immunity against lots of strains of flu, regardless of what comes out next year. Well, is flu a DNA or an RNA virus? And you know, how many base pairs, just to get a, an idea? Yeah, it's an RNA virus and it's segmented. So each of its genes is on its own unique genetic segment. And that's what allows flu to reassort, which is a really unique feature. So you've got sort of two whammies with flu. The first being that the virus drifts. So you get this antigenic drift and that's because you don't have, um, a, a, basically you have an error prone polymerase and there's no way to correct that. So as the virus gets into a host, whether it be a bird or a human or a pig, it will start changing in response to immune pressure jumping and changing species, and that will allow the drift to occur. And if that occurs in sort of the regions that you mount immune responses to, the, the hemagglutin and the neuraminidase, that's why we have to update our, our flu strains and our vaccine every year. But with these segmented genes, what that means is you can also get a shift. And what happens then is when you get an influenza virus, a human one with a bird one or a human one with a, a pig one that can get into the same host, it can actually reassort. The easiest way to think about that is if you have, you know, 
eight green and eight red M&Ms and you throw them in a pile and you start grabbing handfuls of eight, you're gonna get different combinations. In the case of flu, many of the times those combinations are not um, viable, but occasionally you get something that emerges that allows that virus to now cross species or um, evade your immune response. And that's why we get influenza pandemics. I mean, how many different combinations does there appear to be that flu could take on? Is it just a ridiculous number or is it? It's just a ridiculous number. You have, so the reservoir for flu are wild waterfowl. And they have, there's, you know, 16 different hemagglutinin sort of subtypes. There's nine or 10 different neuraminidases. And then you get all those gene segments in the middle that can mix and match. So there is endless possibilities of flu. Now, not all of them will get into humans. We've been very sort of limited to strains that are H1, H2, H3 are typical human flus. But occasionally we do get these what we call spillovers. So things like highly pathogenic avian flu that can get into a person and it typically doesn't transmit, but it can get in and cause severe disease. So that's that's really a key with flu, sort of like coronaviruses, is that we've got these animal reservoirs. So we need to be out doing surveillance, looking in birds and pigs and dogs and at the animal-human interface in order to see what might be out there circulating in animal reservoirs that could potentially pose a risk to human health. I'm sure people have. They've, they've taken a computer and at least calculated the total, um, I guess I'll call it information space or possibilities that flu could change to. And then if you're, I mean, do we even understand how to whittle that down and say, all right, well, these particular manifestations probably wouldn't infect a person. And then of those that would infect, which ones do you think would be pathogenic or not? Is there any understanding in there? Because maybe you could whittle down the uh, the space to 10,000 variants possible instead of like billions, you know? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And something that people like Trevor Bedford at um, the Hutch and Jesse Bloom are doing exactly those types of things is, is sort of modeling all the different genetic um, differences and drifts that you can get. Problem is with flu, we still can't ascribe a phenotype to a genotype. So it's not sort of set in stone that if you get these genetic combinations, this is a phenotype that you're going to get. That's something we still have to actually get in and, and do virus characterizations and test it. So if we're out doing influenza surveillance and we find an H3 virus, let's say, in a pig, and it's a different H3 than what people would have seen and people don't have antibodies to them, that would raise a red flag that this could possibly be a virus that could be of concern for human health. So you have to look at a lot of different properties, including you know, does it have the, the proper amino acid sequence to bind to human receptors or is it specific for avian? Can it replicate in human cells? So we are getting better at, at building those sort of algorithms so that we can start whittling down that space to understand where are our top concerns and where, what are the reservoirs for those? 
Yeah, this is more of an elementary question, but I've heard of like H one N one. What does the H mean? What does the N mean? And the number on at the end of each. Yep, great question. So H is HA or the hemagglutinin, and N is NA or neuraminidase, and those are the two surface glycoproteins on the virus, and that's how you get your nomenclature is um, through the HA and NA. You'll see that when you, you see flu vaccines, you'll see an H1N1, H3N2, and what it's telling you is what subtype those surface glycoproteins belong to. Hmm. Okay. And of the H and the N variations, is one in particular uh, worse than another? Well, it depends on what you're defining as worse in people. Well, more pathogenic to people, yeah. Yeah, more pathogenic to people. It, probably the most pathogenic that we've seen have been some of these viruses that come, they go from wild birds into poultry, and then they can spill over into people. And that would be like an h 5 N1 or H5N6. There's some H7s. These are are typically very pathogenic in poultry. They do nothing to to the birds, the wild birds or reservoir, but when they get into poultry, they can very quickly kill poultry. And when they get into people, it, it causes incredibly severe disease. We haven't seen pandemics with those because they don't transmit well when they're in people. So what's... um. You know, flu appears to be seasonal, at least in the U.S. Uh, where does it go in the off season? Where does it vacation? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a it's a good question. Um, seasonality, yeah. In the northern hemisphere, we definitely have a flu season in the winter. Um, it's just the opposite in the southern hemisphere, right? So when we're enjoying our summer, Australia, New Zealand, Chile, they're all having their winter and their flu season. It never really goes away. If you go to the tropics and equatorial regions, there seems to be low-level flu throughout the year. Um, they really don't have a flu season. It, it might be a little bit higher in the rainy versus the dry season, but there's always some flu out there circulating somewhere. So unfortunately, it never truly takes a vacation, not even now with SARS. You know, we're seeing very low levels of flu in the Southern Hemisphere. And we think it might be because of the measures put in place for SARS, but we don't know if it's something about SARS itself is actually interfering. Yeah, what's the thought with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and flu? Is there any interaction? Was there any interaction with SARS-1 or MERS? You know, who's, I'm sure people are looking at that, right? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, well, they're starting to. SARS-1 and MERS, pretty limited, we, you know, in terms of human infections and transmission. SARS-2, early on in the pandemic, so in February, when things were really starting to heat up, we did see several co-infections. And as you can imagine, they were, they were fairly severe. Now, since, you know, this Southern Hemisphere was in their flu season. People were out there monitoring and they saw very low levels of flu. But again, we don't know if that's because of SARS or because of the quarantine measures, school closing, no travel. So we'll see what happens in, in the U.S. You know, I think we're all a little bit nervous about will we have a flu season? And if we do, what's it going to look like if SARS is still circulating? Um, but there are people doing those studies in 
animal models. And from the reports, I've heard that disease severity is increased. Well, maybe it actually would be protective. Maybe someone that has, uh, you know, COVID, um, if the flu tries to get in there, perhaps maybe there's a protection mechanism. I don't know. Maybe it's the opposite. Yeah, that would be, I guess that would be the only perk to getting COVID, huh? But I... We haven't seen that so far, but again, people are, are now starting those studies. I think it's a really important year to get your flu vaccine because we don't want to find out what those co-infections might look like. Well, on the other hand, if you do get the flu vaccine and then you have, you know, uh, some kind of problem with increased uh, increased sickness, it could be maybe a bad thing to get it. You know? uh, there's, there's really no evidence that you would have any kind of negative reaction. There's no reason to think if you get your flu vaccine, it would make SARS worse. Well, if the flu is not, you know, nothing can be, if it's not 100% effective, and I know nothing can be, um, if it's not effective and you still get the flu and you've had the vaccine for certain strains and then the strains that infect you are different and you're exposed to COVID, I mean, I don't know. I just wonder if that would make it worse or not. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't I wouldn't think so. I mean, one thing about the flu shot, even if it's not 100% effective, we took it's still better than not getting the shot because it will protect you from getting severe disease. So you may still get infected, but you likely won't end up in the hospital. So I, I think it would be a good thing, even if you did happen to get flu after you've been vaccinated, your disease severity is going to be much, much lower than it would be if you didn't have the vaccine. Hmm. Well, how long is this? Uh, how long has flu surveillance been going on? You know, actively, and how many years has a uh, a flu vaccine been in widespread use? And if so, what, you know, what's been noticed? Yeah. So the flu surveillance system, um, especially the one run by the World Health Organization, which is GISRS, G I S R S. I think they just celebrated their fiftieth anniversary that they've had national influenza centers and influenza collaborating centers around the world that are actually out there looking for flu in people in hospitals and doctor's offices. Um, and the vaccine's really been around since the 70s. Now, surveillance for flu in animals and birds has been going on, obviously, not quite as long as that, but it's been going on for, for quite some time. And it really was in about the 60s and 70s that we realized that the important role that animals played, I mean, we knew that before, but that birds were a reservoir, especially these wild birds, and that we needed to consider what's happening at the animal-human interface and not just what's happening in the animals or the human. Well, again, the, the, so we have a lot of data of how flu has changed over, it sounds like, 50 years. Um, that's that's a lot of data. Um, uh, are there correlations? You know, does flu appear to be following some kind of discernible pattern, or does it just look random? I mean, what's the uh, you know what's the data show? Well, I mean, one thing we see is that there's usually a a new pandemic about every twenty or thirty years. Something new will emerge. In terms of patterns, yeah, it, it's it's hard to say. You know, we see, it's not like we can predict, oh, this year we should get an H3 year, this year we'll get an H1 year, here's what we'll see in the birds. It, it's definitely, um, I guess, harder to predict something like that, but we do 
expect flu pandemics to happen about every 20 to 30 years. But there's, you know, the people that are looking at that data, they're not saying, oh, we're seeing like a pattern here. This appears to be happening and then that, et cetera. They don't see anything. Well, they, they'll see changes. You can watch the virus drift. You can watch in the swine population that you're getting more reassortance or there seems to be more viruses emerging. So I wouldn't call them patterns, but there's definitely a lot of data, a lot of watching that help us sort of look for yellow flags, red flags, that something is changing in the population. When do the biggest uh, shifts or drifts tend to happen? Is it when uh, it goes into a, you know, a novel animal that it hasn't been in? Or like what, what seems to be the factors there that cause like a very big change? Yeah, the, the biggest changes and when we see the big shifts are really when an avian virus of some kind, whether it be a wild bird or domestic poultry, can get into a swine, get into a pig, and then you get changes in that swine virus that could transmit to humans. And we saw like the 2009 pandemic was actually a reassortant of four different viruses that had gotten into the swine population likely in the 1990s and just continued to change and adapt and make you know these point mutations, these big shifts until something emerged that was able to infect a human. So that's when we that's when we see the big sort of shifts is when there's an avian virus that can get a foothold in a mammal. Huh. So what um I mean what do you think is going to be the future of uh, flu surveillance and uh, you know and then and then action taken? It seems like you know with with COVID everyone's going bananas and I don't know they don't want anyone to die. Uh, with flu it seems like a much more measured reaction. You know they ask tens of thousands of people at least in the U.S. die every year from it. You know, we have vaccines, et cetera, but people aren't shutting everything down. Like, what, what's your thoughts around that? Do you think that flu, the, uh, you know, our, our interventions are going to get more drastic to it or it's going to stay at kind of its, its existing level? You know, as a flu researcher, it's, it's frustrating to hear people say, oh, it's just flu. Because, you know, just flu does cause a lot of morbidity and mortality worldwide. You know, one thing that's, that's different about flu and SARS is that, you know, most of us have some immunity to flu, either through vaccination or through infections. And unless something brand new came out, like let's say one of these highly pathogenic avian viruses now gains the ability to transmit and nobody's seen anything like this before, that might raise different intervention strategies, especially if they continue to be such high um, mortality as what we see when people get infected. But even with that, we may have some cross-reactivity um, at the T-cell level with human flus. And that's, that's the problem with SARS, right? Is nobody, most, most people have not seen SARS-1 or MERS and there's very little cross-reactivity with the seasonal coronaviruses. So I would think if some brand new flu strain came out, it may warrant a similar sort of um, response. Okay. What's the best way for people to find out more about, uh, you know, flu surveillance and, you know, what your work is about and what's going on? Where can they go and, and learn more? Yeah, well, they can go. There's a, a, some really good sites. Um, you can go to the CDC 
and look at their influenza and they'll have information about human canine flu because dogs get flu too and there's a vaccine for dogs. You can go to the World Health Organization and look at their influenza site and that will tell you even you know what viruses will be in the vaccines this year. What are we seeing around the world? There's real time data and um, maps to show you what's circulating where. You can go to Trevor Bedford's site at the Hutch in Seattle, who does a lot of what you were talking about is not really forecasting, but watching flu. And he's very active on Twitter and social media and will post a lot of what he's seeing. And he's doing this for SARS now. And then for me, you can go to St. Jude and type in my name and go to my lab website and get more information about what we're working on. And there's information about both our World Health Organization Collaborating Center and what we actually do, as well as our Flu Center of Excellence. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.